You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening. All right. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Uh, We are continuing our study of the Psalms uh, this summer, and, and on a personal note, this has been a, such a blessing to me. And I'm not just saying that to try to sound pious. Like, I, this has been such a blessing to me going through the Psalms. Um, because the Psalms are, are not meant, just real quick, they're not meant only to inform us and to direct our worship and even to teach us uh, theological truths about God. But since the Psalms are poetic, right, they really make your heart soar. Right, they, sincere, like where it's poetic language, you soar, soar to the heights, see who God is, like your heart just pours out. Right, the, the Psalms are filled with emotive language, emotional language, and beauty. And obviously, I was just thinking as I was just writing this introduction, God has been gracious to give us a book like this, for real, to give us the Psalms. Especially if you're like me and you spend a lot of time reading really dry stuff. Right, like the words that come out of my mouth when I read these books out loud, I could start a fire with them. It's so dry. Right? So then to read the Psalms and see this emotional, beautiful language is awesome. Um, but tonight, again, we're going to be in the 32nd Psalm, so go ahead and be flipping there. Uh, now this Psalm, Psalm 32, can be put into a few different categories. Uh, it's a Psalm of Thanksgiving, it's a Psalm of Repentance, and it's also uh, categorized as a Wisdom Psalm, uh, in that parts of the Psalm actually read really similar to the Proverbs um, but it's a psalm that gives thanks to God for the forgiveness of sins, explains a bit of what repentance looks like, and then gives instruction in what to do in light of that. Right? So this psalm is really rich in many ways. And it's a really good one to commit to memory. I'm working on it. It's only 11 verses. Memorize this one. Try really hard. I, I challenge you. Memorize Psalm 32. Uh, But in this psalm, King David, just to give you a rundown of it, King David wrote it, and he begins to talk about the blessedness of being forgiven of sins, right? And then he goes on after that to describe a time uh, when he felt the sting and pain of living in unrepentant sin and how he eventually came to his senses and sought forgiveness from God, and God gave it to him. And then after that, the psalm goes on to instruct us, uh, and on what we should and should not do in light of the forgiveness that God offers to us. Right? So again, this psalm covers a lot of stuff. But above all, this psalm is a great reminder to us of the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. Above all, it reminds us of God's love, steadfast love and faithfulness. How quick... That God is to forgive us if we will only confess our sins to Him and ask for mercy and trust in His Son to bring that about. It's really astounding to think, to smack me, to think that over and over again, God is so quick to forgive such a stubborn and sinful people. You ever think about that? Like God is so quick to forgive us. And we are just as quick to sin against Him. And yet He keeps offering forgiveness. It's it's mind-blowing. He is abundantly merciful. So if you're currently caught in sin, if you're currently caught in sin and you are being foolish, regardless of what the sin is, whether it be sexual sin, sin of attitude, sins of speech, whatever it might be, if you're currently caught in sin and you're being a fool and you won't let it go and you won't repent, I pray that God drives the sword of the Spirit through your heart. 
this evening. I pray that God would crush you with the scriptures this evening, if that's you. That he would bring you to repentance by breaking you. And if you're a tender-hearted believer, and I know that we have some of these here this evening, if you're a tender-hearted believer who is repentant, this may be for sins from years ago, you are repentant, you've confessed, you've sought mercy from God in Christ, but you often wonder if you're really forgiven. My prayer is that God would comfort you with the truth that He has more grace than you have sin. And that His forgiveness is unmeasurable towards His people. So with that being said, we're going to get into Psalm 32. Oh, one last note before we go in, a technical note. Uh, there's a word used in this psalm, sila. Uh, we don't exactly know uh, what that means. It's kind of intranslatable. Uh, it could be a musical break, right? I don't have a guitar up here, so we're not going to do that. Uh, or it could also mean um, uh, to, to pause and reflect on what was just said or sung. So I'm going to be pausing for a moment every time that that word is used. So I'm not, it's not that I've lost my place, just so you know. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the scriptures that you've given to us, that have been faithfully passed down to us, that we might know who you are through the revelation of your word. Lord, I pray that you would work repentance in us this evening. That you'd break us, that you might heal us. That you'd comfort those who are afflicted this evening. Holy Spirit, do a work of grace here this evening, please. Speak through your word. Do something. Make us holy. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're just going to kind of, like I always do, we're going to kind of walk through this psalm. All right, so verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So this psalm begins with a joyful exclamation, right? Blessed is the one, right? Really similar to Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, meaning blessed. How happy, right? How joyous. God's favor is upon the person whose sins are forgiven. It's just a burst of excitement from David, right? So in essence, I would argue this. David is claiming that only the forgiven are truly happy, right? Blessed is the man. Right? God's favor upon this man. Happiness belongs to this man. Joy belongs to this man because his sin has been forgiven. Only the forgiven person is truly happy, is truly blessed. But what's interesting to me, just of many things, is that this psalm doesn't say, blessed is the man who perfectly keeps the law. Right? We know that there was one blessed man who did that, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as fallen sons of Adam, that could never be ever said of us. Right? But the psalm does not start with, blessed is the man who perfectly keeps the law. Rather, this psalm speaks blessing to the forgiven sinner. Right? And we've got to grasp that right off the get-go. Blessing to the forgiven sinner. This blessing is not for the self-righteous who think that they're doing well. There's actually only woes to those who are self-righteous, or rather who think that they're righteous on their own, literally a self-given righteousness. Woe to them. This blessing is not for the self-righteous who thinks that they're doing well and that everyone just needs to be more like them and get their stuff together and do what they do. The blessing's not for them. This blessing is for the one who has humbled himself. And sought mercy from God. For the one who has come to the end of himself and knows what he is. Knows that he is someone who's violated the law of God. That's who this blessing is for. Someone who says, I know what I am. I know what a wretch that I am. I know I don't look to you the way that I should. I know I don't talk about you the way that I should. I know that I don't obey you the way that I should. I know my disobedience and I'm weighed down by it. And yet they seek mercy from God. Blessing to them. The one who seeks mercy from God and knows who they are. Know what they are. The one who's come to the end of themselves and has looked to Jesus Christ's person and work of substitution in place of sinners. And we know this being in the new covenant and looking back on the old. Blessed is the one who has looked to Christ. Blessed is the one who's cried out to God, only Jesus can make me right with God. I need his life and death and resurrection. I need his perfect righteousness in my place because I'm unrighteous and I need his substitutionary death satisfying God's wrath on the cross because I can't bear it. Blessed is the one who looks to Christ. The one who cries out, I need Jesus. Because this is the only place that forgiveness is found. Blessed is that man. But something really interesting that David does here he uses three really common words you'll find in the Bible that refer to sin. Right? He refers to transgression. First off, he says the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is a general act of rebellion. Right? Just a general, just, again, it sounds funny to read it that way, but that's the definition. Just a general act of rebellion against a thrice holy God. No, whatever. Uh, a general act of rebellion and disloyalty to God. That's what transgression is, just a general rebellion. And then the second word he uses is sin. Right? Sin means to miss the mark, literally, to miss the mark, to miss the standard of God. Right? So God has set, this is my law, this is what you are to do, this is how you're to keep it, and you just don't measure up to it. And that can be intentional or unintentional. 
Right? That can be sins of commission or sins of omission. Right? So whether intentional or unintentional, it doesn't matter. To sin is just to miss God's standard. And the third one is iniquity. Right? The iniquity that you don't hold against the person. An iniquity, or iniquity rather, is wrong action. This is the worst. Associated with the intent to do wrong. Iniquity is premeditated sin. I would argue probably the worst kind of sin. And it also has a connotation of guiltiness. Being guilty. Feeling guilty. But the point being made and using all these words, this is beautiful, don't miss this, is that God is a God who forgives all sin. All sin. All kinds of sin. Right? Whether it be big or small sins, right? Because there are weightier and lesser matters of the law, but all are equally damnable. Right? Whether it be big or small sins, accidental sins, right? Where you just didn't think and you just did something on the spot, or premeditated sins, or sins of ignorance, sins of thought, word, or deed, whatever they are, God will forgive them, is the point that David's making. That he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, whether it's iniquity, sin, or transgression. And to show that point, David also lists three things that God does with our sin. The first thing says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven. This blew my mind. I didn't know this. Shame on me. To, to forgive means to literally lift up off of somebody. That's what it means here. He, he, sin is lifted off of the sinner. It's taken away from them. Right? And the second is, he says, God covers their iniquity. To cover something means to make it never seen again in this context. Not seen, this, this is cool, not seen by either God or man. To cover it completely. And the third, it says, the one against whom God, what does it say? Against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. God no longer counts the sin against the sinner. This is the most important one. God does not literally he literally does not impute the guilt to the repentant sinner any longer. He no longer holds it to their account. He no longer counts their sins against them whenever he forgives them. And why? We know something that David didn't know. God no longer imputes us with our own guilt because he has laid it on his son and has crushed him for it. Hear me on this, repentant sinner, Christian who flies to Christ and looks to him. It's no longer on your account. It's no longer on your account. God no longer holds your sins against you. He takes them away. He covers them never to be seen again. He does not charge them to your account. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I heard a preacher use this illustration. It's as if God took the charge of all of our sin that was against us, folded it up, placed it in the hands of the Lord Jesus, and then drove a nail through it. That's what happened on the cross. Christ has bore your iniquity. No longer counted against you, Christian done away with, nailed to the cross. Beautiful. But David then finishes this stanza by saying that the blessed man has no deceit in his spirit. 
And this means, this is important, we're going to get into this a lot more. This means that, they, that, the, that the, the forgiven person has stopped lying to himself. There's no deceit in his spirit. He's not lying to himself about what he is anymore. And he's not lying to God about his sin any longer. He has owned his sin. He has recognized it and sought forgiveness through faith in the Messiah. There's no deceit in him. And then in verses 3 and 4, David goes on to recount a personal experience that he had whenever he foolishly refused to repent. Whenever he refused to confess his sins, and he recounts how that went for him. It's not good. For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your heavy hand was upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So in a nutshell, David tells us he was miserable. He was miserable when he was unrepentant. He says he wasted away. He wasted away. Now this could refer to a spiritual wasting away or even physical sickness or both. Right? And the reason why I say physical sickness is because we know that sometimes physical problems and spiritual problems can be related. There's a reason why Stephen stands here and warns you guys whenever you're going to take the Lord's Supper, don't take this in an unworthy manner or you might be drinking sickness and death upon yourself as a, as a, as a means of God's wrath. All right, so we know that sometimes physical sickness is related to the spiritual, not always, but sometimes it can be. But regardless, this misery, this being wasted away, I think we've all felt this kind of misery that comes with holding on to our sin. I hope you haven't, but I would wager I'm not the only sinner in the room that's done this. You can't sleep, or at least you don't sleep well. And when you wake up, you feel like, trash. You don't sleep well. Your life seems gray. This, in this misery, life is just bleh, just gray. You might become irritable with people for no reason because you know that you're harboring sin and sin makes you miserable. You don't want fellowship with other believers because they might ask you how you're doing. They might want to call you to repentance should they find out. You might shirk some spiritual responsibilities that you have, whether it be to the church, things that you're supposed to be doing to help uh, amongst the body of believers, or maybe you're shirking spiritual responsibilities to your family because you're in sin. I, I don't want to read the Bible with them. I don't want to lead them in prayer. I don't want to do these things because I know that I'm dirty and I'm not clean in this misery. There's a constant feeling of dread and guilt in your stomach because you know what you've done. You know that you're still holding it. Or maybe, this is me, you feel extreme apathy towards almost everything because you're harboring sin. And you have a fear that you're going to be found out. It's miserable when you hold on to your sin. And David says he felt this way. He was wasting away because he kept silent. Meaning he refused to take the sin to God. He refused to confess his sin. He was stubborn and wicked and held on to it. And I would argue that often we are stupid and stubborn people and we suffer for it, don't we? What I just described, I am not alone. I am positive because I talk to you guys. I'm not alone in this. We're stupid and stubborn and we suffer and we deserve it. Because we hold on to our sin. And look, if you only take, uh, I want you to take the gospel away from this. But on this note, 
I hope this burns into your heart. There is nothing on earth more miserable than a Christian who refuses to repent. Nothing is more miserable than a Christian in sin who will not repent. But then verse 4 tells us that God is the one, God is the one bringing this spiritual misery down on David. He says, your heavy hand was upon me day and night, right? And you might want like sheltered in God's hands, but you don't want his heavy hand, all right? That's not good. And this is the way David's referring to the discipline of God. God would not allow David to be at peace while in his sin. The Holy Spirit of God in David would not let him rest because of his sin. God intentionally was sapping the vitality out of David's spirit. He was breaking David down so that David would finally look up to God and confess. This is what God's working in him. God is afflicting him in the midst of this in order to work repentance. Know this. When you're in sin and you're miserable about it, and and I, I know what you're thinking if you're in some kind of sin. This is actually fairly enjoyable. The pain will come. Right? In Hebrews, we're told that God disciplines his legitimate children, which means that if you're not a bastard child, if you're actually God's child, he will discipline you. The pain will eventually come. Maybe not at first, but it's coming. But when you sin and you're miserable about it finally, it is God who is disciplining you. The Lord Jesus himself in Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And this is a grace from God. It's grace from God that he would discipline those whom he loves. That he would afflict us with misery. So long as we hold on to sin. This is grace from God. He's calling us back to himself. He's not letting us rest. Why? Because he has more for us in himself than we are settling for in our sin. There's true life to be lived. The end of the matter is plain, said Solomon. In Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep His commandments. This is what matters. God's calling us back to Himself because He has more life for us than we're settling for. This is grace from God. Just an aside here, I'll give you this one for free. If this kind of misery is merely God's heavy hand, what is His unrelenting eternal wrath against unrepentant sinners? If you felt this misery, how much worse must it be on the unrepentant who die in their sins. But then eventually David comes to his senses and he breaks down and he repents in verse 5. Right? And verse 5 shows us a bit of what true repentance actually looks like. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David acknowledged his sin to God. He acknowledged his sin and he didn't try to hide it. Right? He says, I didn't cover it. He's not trying to hide it anymore from God. And really, it's useless to try and hide something from the one who sees and judges the hearts of all human beings. It's really stupid to try to hide our sin from God. You saw that went for Jonah. You can't hide things from him. He sees all. He knows all. He is God. Where can I go from your spirit? If I climb to the highest mountain, you're there. If I, climb, if I go to the depths of the grave, there you are. I know that psalm is meant to be positive. But nevertheless, God is everywhere. He knows everything. We're stupid if we think we can hide our sin from Him. 
David didn't cover it. He owned his sin before God. He didn't make light of it. He didn't try to minimize it or sweep it under the rug. He came clean to God. So often we try to justify and rationalize our sin. So often we try to rationalize it. I did this because... If this wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have. If they wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have. And when we try to rationalize our sin, when you try to rationalize your sin, you're hardening your heart. It's really what you're doing. That's, that's the result. You're hardening your heart. You're prolonging your repentance and you're bringing more discipline on yourself. Just own what you did. Acknowledge it to God. Own it. Stop being a fool. Confess. Confess your bad attitude. Confess your harshness with others. Your lack of compassion. Confess your lust and your hatred and your apathy. Confess the neglect of your family. Confess your unbelief. Confess your wickedness. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't justify it. Confess your sin. Now say this, when we confess our sins, we need, when we're able, we need to be specific. And I'm not getting Catholic on you, but we need to be specific. We need to confess particular sins particularly. Specific sins need confessed specifically. Name your sin to God. God, I sinned. I just a vague. Don't shoot a Hail Mary. I, I guess I sinned today. Don't do that. Confess your sins. Name it. Confess that it is wicked, that you are wicked. Put the guilt on yourself. Load yourself up with your own guilt. Feel the sting and pain of it. Don't try and ease your conscience. God help us if when we go to Him in prayer, confessing our sin and repenting, that we would try to ease our conscience. How dare we try to do that? How dare we try to take it easy on ourselves? How dare we try to, to take our own guilt away? Confess that you deserve the discipline that He afflicted you with. Confess that you deserve hell for your sin. No matter how small or minor it might seem. Don't try to mellow your sin out. Don't try to be nice to yourself. You have sinned against the holy God. To paraphrase Matthew Henry, when we come before God in repentance and confession, there should be a holy blushing. We should blush at our sin. We should be ashamed of ourselves for what we've done. But I fear that that's not often us. We're, well, God will just forgive me anyway, and we presume upon His grace, and we're not even embarrassed for how we've transgressed the law of God. And this is something that, especially as Reformed people, that we've got to fight against because we preach a gospel of free grace and God's sovereign election and those things. But that doesn't mean that we ought not be ashamed of ourselves whenever we sin. We ought to blush when we sin. But to paraphrase, I believe it was Ezekiel, we often have the forehead of a harlot. Now take this one with you. This is a freebie. 
Forehead of a harlot means whenever a harlot, whenever a prostitute, whenever a whore does her job, she doesn't blush. She's not ashamed of herself. This is just what she does. She does this so often, she's not ashamed of herself anymore. God says his people have foreheads like a harlot. You don't even blush anymore when you sin. And I fear that that's us. Often it's me. And I presume upon the grace of God. But notice how David reasons with himself. I said, he's reasoning with himself, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He uses his covenant name. I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. To my covenant God, I will go to him. He goes directly to his God. Hear me on this. He does not turn to man to try to ease his guilt or give him assurance. He does not turn to his works. Look what I've done in the past. Surely this sin isn't, doesn't really outweigh the good that I've done. He does not turn to mere moral reform. Right? I'm going to try to do better from now on. He doesn't turn to that. He doesn't turn to anything in himself or anything in any other man. But he turns to God. I will go to the Lord. I will confess my sins to the Lord. I will seek mercy from God. Because he is my God. Though I've sinned against him, he's still my God. I will ask for forgiveness and a renewal of spirit. David knows that God will not turn him away in spite of his sinning. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. And you forgave me. God responds to repentance and confession with forgiveness. And if it's true of one of the people of God, it's true of all of us. He says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He uses two words that overlap. He's saying, you forgave every single bit of my sin. I confessed. And you said, it's not on your account anymore. You've, you lifted it off of me. God's pardon is deep and thorough. It's all of it. When God does something, he does it completely. And notice this. This pardon from God is instantaneous. There is no gap of time referenced. There's no works that David did. I confessed my sins to you, and then I went to the temple, and I presented this sacrifice, and then you forgave my sin. No, nothing. I confessed my sin, and you forgave it. It's instantaneous. David seeks mercy and forgiveness from God, and God just gives it to him. He just gives it to him on the spot. What grace from God. He is so unlike us. He's so, it takes us so long to forgive people. Even when we tell them you're forgiven, do we, not, do we not harbor some ill feeling for a long time after? God is so quick to forgive it. What grace. It is the mercy of God that leads us to confess and repent. It is his mercy that leads us to repentance. David went to God because he knew God wouldn't turn him away. David wasn't rolling the dice, right? He knows who God is. God's revealed himself in the word. He knows that God's not going to turn him away. 
So hear me on this. We don't confess and repent in order to convince God to be merciful. That's not why. We confess and repent because we know that he is merciful to the repentant. That's why we repent. Because we know he's merciful. Let me take a couple of minutes here. Some people are slow to confess sin and slow to repent because they think God won't forgive them. Tell me if this is you. I've done this too many times. He must be done with me. Surely there is a line and I've crossed it. That is a lie from hell. There's no line with God. You come to him for mercy, he gives it. God has more grace than you have sin. And His mercy knows no measure. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He says, come, listen to me. Listen to me. Let me reason with you. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Come to me, and I'll make you clean. Period. Don't doubt His forgiveness. I'll say this too, and we'll go on. This confession of sin and repentance must come from the heart. This is not just paying lip service to God. Verse 2 tells us that there is no deceit in the forgiven person. And among, among many things, I think we can get this from that. God knows if your repentance is genuine. And listen, we're never going to be sorry enough for our sin, right? So I'm not saying that. If you're sorry enough, God will forgive you. We're never going to be sorry enough because until we see Christ face to face, we're not really going to see the awfulness of our sin in its full form. I'm not saying, are you sorry enough? But I'm saying God knows whether or not your repentance is genuine. He knows whether or not you're broken over your sin. He knows whether or not you want to see your sin killed. He knows your heart. He won't be fooled. Don't be like the Pharisees whose God's name was on their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Be like the repentant person that David describes in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. God knows. For the repentant sinner, what a blessing it is to read, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But David then goes on to encourage us to repent. We're going to speed through some of these verses. Therefore, let everyone, therefore, in light of what I've just said about all of this, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's saying that God is a hiding place for those who repent. Right? That, that, that God preserves us from the flood, the flood of his own wrath and anger over sin. Right? So God is actually our hiding place from God's own wrath. This is sounding. And he will deliver those who trust in him. And what David's telling us in verse 6 is that since God is so quick to forgive and he is so quick to be merciful, that we ought to seek his mercy while there is still time.
This reminds us that there is a coming day. Either in your death or on the day of judgment when there will be no more mercy from God. This is one of the most terrifying things that you can read in the Bible. Seek his mercy while it can still be found. Meaning that one day there will be none. God's mercy will run out. And what kind of fools would we be to not go to God today and repent while there is still time and while His mercy still abounds? David is saying, do it today. Do it now. To quote Charles Spurgeon, between the time of sin, the sin you committed, and the day of judgment, mercy rules the hour. And God may be found. But once the sentence has gone forth, Pleading will be useless, for the Lord will not be found by the condemned soul. So to quote the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, I believe, now is the appointed time. Today's the day of salvation. Don't be a fool. Repent. But then in verses 8 and 9, the tone changes, and God graciously begins to speak. He speaks himself, and he speaks to give us wisdom in light of what's been said. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. Don't be like a stubborn animal, which has to be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So first God says, look, I love you. The King James says, I'll keep my loving eye upon you. God loves us so much that he will direct his loving eye upon us and teach us and and, and steer us the right way. And this is his counsel to us because he loves us so much. Don't be a stubborn animal. Don't be a stubborn mule. You know that I will forgive you. So cease your wickedness and repent. That's God's counsel to his own people. Don't be like a stubborn animal. God warns us here that just like you tame a stubborn mule with a painful bit and bridle, right? The horses and mules don't stop because they feel like stopping. You pull that rein and it pulls a a bit in their mouth and it hurts them. And then they do what you say. It hurts. God says, just like that happens with a stubborn animal, I will discipline you because I want you near to me. So don't be a fool. right? Just like a parent, right? I mean, I don't have any children, but I see how you guys talk to your kids sometimes, right? I don't want to spank you, but I'm going to, right? I don't want to do this, but I will. And I'll do it in order to keep you near me and living as you should, because I love you. Right? God's not on his knees here or anything like that, but he is pleading with us to spare ourselves some pain and to stay close to him, to be quick to repent when we sin. To be obedient children, or he will bring us painfully to a place of repentance. Hear me on this. If you belong to Christ, if God chose you before the foundation of the world was laid, if Christ atoned for your sins and the Holy Spirit has applied the work of the Son of God to you, if that's true of you, God will make you repent. (laughs) He will. He will bring you to repentance. There are one or two ways to do this. You can repent willingly, like a submissive child, or he can break you. And I think sometimes God looks at us in our stubbornness and says, this is going to hurt. 
But he loves us too much to let us stay in our sin. King David then goes on to issue a warning of comfort. Or a warning and a comfort. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. It's starting to take an upturn. So I'm starting to get more positive. But the warning is strong. He says the wicked, the unrepentant, will have sorrow beyond measure. Many will be their sorrows. They will face eternity without a hope. Without the mercy of God. Without the blood of Christ applied to them. Without forgiveness of sins. They will live a life of strife and turmoil and condemnation in this life and then suffer God's unrelenting fury in hell. Surely, many sorrows are for the wicked. But, but, the one who trusts in God's promise, the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who believes His promise of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, that person has unrestricted access to God's forgiveness. Unrestricted access to His mercy and His grace. God's love is steadfast for the believer. For the repentant one. Steadfast. It's more certain than the ground that you walk on. It's more certain than the sun rising. It's more certain, for sure, than your next breath. It's steadfast. It's strong. It's unending. It's a shelter for us. So then, in light of that, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He says, be glad and rejoice. Rejoice in the God of your salvation, that you've been pardoned for sin, that you've been washed clean, that God's love is unyielding, that God has granted you repentance, that you have found mercy. He says, rejoice, O righteous, and upright in heart. Not meaning those who think that they're righteous, who are righteous by men's standards, and who are good, and who think that they're good in their own hearts, but rather those whom God has given the righteousness and uprightness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. Rejoice in what God has done for you. Rejoice in His mercy and your forgiveness through Christ. Shout for joy. Because blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. If there's anything to shout for joy about, it's that. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. If there's any cause for rejoicing, it's that. Let's wrap this up. For application, I have two things. It's the two things this psalm calls us to do. And the first is repent. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, I beg you, turn from your wickedness. Feel the weight of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ bore the punishment that sinners deserve in their place on a cross. God punished Him in place of all those who would believe so that through faith in Him we might be reconciled to Him because our debt has been canceled through Him. Trust Him. Look to Him. Be saved. And to the believer, repent. Our life is one of constant repentance. If there is sin in your life that you're clinging to, let it go. Don't be a fool. 
It says, let the godly seek him while he still might be found. And you guys know that I don't believe that a true believer can lose their salvation. But nevertheless, the people of God are told to seek mercy while it still can be found. I don't have to reconcile that. I just have to preach it. Seek mercy while it can still be found, Christian. Take the warnings of God seriously. Repent. Don't presume upon God's grace. Confess it to God. Renew your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Own your sin and seek mercy because you will find it. You will find it. God will not turn you away. Don't bring any more discipline on yourself. Don't be stubborn. Look to your Savior and be healed of your sin. God has grace for you. And once you've repented, here's the application too. Rejoice. It's my favorite thing I get to tell you guys to do. Once you've repented, rejoice. And you can only rejoice whenever you know that you've been pardoned. So know it. Know that you've been pardoned. Know that you've been reconciled to God. Please hear me. Do not doubt this promise. It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Right? Don't ruin this blessing with unbelief. Don't doubt it. God has spoken with His holy mouth and said that He will forgive and we have no right to doubt Him. Rejoice. Though you have not been faithful, He has been. Though you have sinned, He has been kind to you. Praise Him. You have been forgiven. And as you've owned your sin to Him, own this truth as well. I'll leave you with... A very, very relevant verse. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. God, I thank You for the forgiveness that is available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell those who have no money to come and buy without price, that you just give salvation to us. You tell us who are thirsty for righteousness to come, and you'll fulfill it. You'll fill our bellies with righteousness through Christ. For those of us who know that we're dirty and we're poor in spirit, that you'll, that you'll bless us who come to Christ for salvation. Lord, I pray that you would grant us repentance. Help us to chew on this psalm for the rest of the week, to ask ourselves, where is my sin? And Lord, for those of us who already know what our sin is, break us that we might repent. I pray you would bring strong discipline down upon anyone with hidden sins. That you'd rob them of sleep. That you'd rob them of joy until they can rejoice again in the God of their salvation. And Lord, to those who are already broken and who have sought forgiveness, bless them with the assurance of pardon that's ours in the Lord Jesus. Remind them of his work and restore joy to them, God. But Lord, we praise you and thank you for Christ crucified, who is our righteousness, who is our propitiation. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.